for those of you who haven't met me, my name is Joe Mueller. Um, it is uh, an honor to uh, be an elder here um, and to get to share with you uh, from God's Word today. Um, so today uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 33 through 42. So as we've been going through this book of Acts, we've come to what I think is a pretty interesting section uh, in the narrative of the book. Um, Acts 5, all the way through about 8-4 or thereabouts, depending on how you cut it up, I think can be divided into roughly two equal sections. Not equal in terms of verses, because uh, that's not the case, but equal in terms of theme and concept and structure and form. Our first section in these, these two sections, right, is Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we're going to see the whole section sort of completed. And then the second section is Acts 6 all the way through 8-4. These sections complement each other. They follow the same pattern and generally move the reader in the same way. These sections are connected. And when read in light of each other, I think we can harvest some pretty uh, insightful and fruitful and beneficial theological fruit from reflecting on these passages, and which I hope for us to do a little bit later. You can think of each of these sections sort of as a single page in your mind. So we, we have two pages, one and the one, Acts 5 and Acts 6 through 8, 4. Each of these big sections, right, is divided into three smaller sections. And so let's just take a look at what Acts 5 has been so far leading up to today. If you can remember back a few weeks ago, we heard about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11. And we learned about how the church restored purity in the face of corruption within. This was the first section of Acts. Then we read in in uh, uh, first section of Acts five, sorry. Then in Acts five twelve through thirty two, we read about how God's people were interacting with the outside world, how they were bringing the good news of the kingdom of God while standing amidst persecutions from the enemies of God. So this is our second section of Acts five. So if we look at this piece of paper of Acts five. And divided into three sections, we could see the first heading may be called Corruption Within and Purity Restored. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. And the, the second section, we could think of as Mission Engaged and Persecution from Without. And we want to think of that as the Apostles' Clash with the Council and the High Priest. And so this week, in Acts 5, 32 through 42... We're going to close out this literary unit of Acts 5 by looking at the historical outcome, what, what ends up happening when the apostles engage in mission and receive persecution from the outside world. What is going to happen to these sign and wonder performing, speak truth to power apostles before the high priest and those who are with him and the council, that is, all the senate of the people of Israel, which is from Acts 521. This morning, we'll see what happens, and we'll get a peek into the response of our brothers and sisters in the early church to this persecution from without. We'll get to see with their eyes as we examine this God-inspired, heart-pricking, 
conscious, conscience-softening, Christ-exalting conclusion to Acts chapter 5. So please stand with me as we read from God's Word, and we're going to be starting in verse 27, so we can get a little bit of a flavor uh, of where we have been before we go into what we're going to talk about today. Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel A teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care that you what you are about to do with these men for the for before these days, Thutis, I think that's how you say it, right? Rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some away, drew some of the people away after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be overthrow you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You can have a seat and let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we can call you Father. We are so grateful that you are near to us and that you save us and that you redeem us from all of our sins and that you walk us in communion with your Son. And so, Father, we, we beg you to open our ears to the truth of your word. We beg you to send your spirit to us and fill us with faith and renew our hearts and to make us more like Jesus. So, Father, grant what we ask for the sake of your son and for the glory of your name. Amen. So, there's three sort of smaller sections in the midst of this uh, last section. Uh, that we're going to look at today. The first section is going to be in verses 33 through 40. Then we're going to look at verse 41 as as a section, and then verse 42 as a section. 
the first sort of section is going to have this heading of providence, providence. Jesus is in control, providence. There are several different ways we could examine this first section, the verses 33 through 40. We could look at how a level-headed Gamaliel, who commentators from all over the church, from John Chrysostom, who's a fourth-century archbishop in the city of Constantinople and a, a pretty important church father, or uh, John Polhill, who was a, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's uh, the man who wrote the notes in the ESV Study Bible for the, the Book of Acts. Both of these men and many other people think that this Gamaliel is the Gamaliel who taught Paul. So Acts 22, 3, um, Paul talks about how he studied under Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law. Many people think that these are the, the same man. And we could look at how this level-headed Gamaliel turned away a bunch of men chomping at the bit to kill the apostles with a few words of solid reasoning. But we're not. We could look at this snapshot of the climate of Palestine, where pretend messiahs, pretend Christs, were popping up so often that Gamaliel didn't have to think too hard to come up with at least two really good examples of people who rose up against the Roman Empire, were put down, and their followers were scattered. Those movements didn't have God's hands all over them, and as a result, they failed and died. Or we could talk about how Gamaliel's words ring true to us today 2,000 years ago. As we think back on the history of the church, and we realize that he is right. He spoke prophetically in that meeting when he said, you will not be able to overthrow the church of God. No amount of opposition will be able to, to squelch what God is doing in the world because God is in control. But we're not going to do that either. Instead, I want us to engage in some theological reflection, especially as it relates to the doctrine of God's providence. But, but first, what is providence? Providence is simply where, where sovereignty meets history. It's what happens when real life hugs the idea that God is in control of all things. To use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, providence is God's ever-present power that upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and governs those creatures so that all things come to us, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. God's providence, his ability to govern his creatures so that all things happen to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand, is put on display in this passage. And I want us to explore a little bit how that's the case. Simply put, God turns the murderous rage of the council against the apostles into a, a rage slightly less murderous. He changes them from wanting to kill the apostles to simply wanting to beat them and to tell them to shut up. And when the evil intended to kill, sorry, sorry, Olivia, didn't mean to say that. Um, when God, when the evil men re resolve in their hearts to kill God's people, God changes that resolve. For God's hand in this, I, I think if, if it's unclear that that's the case, maybe uh, Gamaliel is just really wicked smart, right? And he really gives really good reasons, and they're like, yeah, that's really smart. I don't want to do that. Um, think about Acts 5, 41. That's where I want us to, to see that, that God truly is sovereign in this. Um, Acts 5, 41, right? They, 
They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Who are they counted worthy by? That's what I want us to think about. We'll think about more what counted worthy means in a little bit. But clearly, God is the one who's counting them worthy. God is the one who thought that they were worthy to suffer shame for the name. And that led the apostles to rejoice. They saw with their eyes that God's hand is all over this. And I can rejoice in this. So God is sovereign in this. God is sovereign and he turned the will of the council to listen to the advice of Gamaliel. It it says that in Acts 5.39, right? So they took his advice. And it's clear from Acts 5.41 that they were counted worthy by God to suffer. They're counted worthy by God. So a a couple um, applications by way of observation here. The first observation that I want us to make is that you don't even have to be in the room for God to work on your behalf. You don't even have to be in the room. We see that in verse 34, right? Um, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So the men, imagine the, the, the scene in your mind, right? You have a bunch of people sort of gathered around. Um, the men are brought before them. Peter has just said something, and everybody in the room is filled with rage at these guys. They, they are so angry that they keep uh, proclaiming that Jesus is a Messiah. They're so angry that they keep performing all these, these miracles that are putting them to shame and calling into question their spiritual power and authority over the people of God. They are enraged. And, and the apostles are taken out probably by guards, right, out of the room. What must they be thinking? What's going through their heads? How are they like feeling in that moment, they're probably scared, right? They probably don't know what's going to happen. They're probably thinking about the future. They may have kids. They may have a spouse. They may have people that they love that they're thinking, will I ever get to see them again? They are scared. And they're not even in the room where their life is on the line. There are many times in a person's life, in all of our lives, where we can't be even be in the room where decisions are made that can change the tra- trajectory, tra- blah, trajectory of our lives forever. D- just two examples here. Think about a boardroom. Boardrooms are where jobs get created so that we can work and we can make money to support ourselves and our families and to give to those in need. Those are the three Um, purposes of actually having a job, right? Who is making the decision to expand an office in this location or to move a business to that location or to make an opportunity for promotion within the department that you're in? Men, right? But the decisions are in God's hands. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Or imagine an operating room where a loved one, a child, 
a sibling, a spouse, a parent, friend, is literally moments away from death. And the doctors perform the surgery with success. They save the life of your parent, your child, your sibling, your friend. Now, was it just the skill of the physician that determined the outcome on that operating table? Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is in control. God is in control of those rooms and all rooms. And he is at work on our behalf because of Christ. God is in control. But there is a second side to this as well. There's a second flip to this coin. And that leads us to our second observation here. And that observation is that whatever happens in these rooms, never, ever, ever, ever is an indication of how much or how little God loves you. So how is, how is this an observation that I'm making? I want us to go back to that introduction, right, where I talked about the two pages of Acts. We have Acts 5 on one side and Acts 6 through 8, 4 on the other. And I talked about how they're related to each other. And I talked about how we'll compare these two pages and we'll get some rich theological reflection from it. And so now it's our time to reflect. If you look at Acts 6, look into the future, you'll, you'll maybe read the heading and be like, oh, yeah, the Hellenistic uh, widows. I remember that. That's where the church is so busy and so bustling that, that there are widows, right? Widows are people whose husbands are dead and their children are gone. And they have no one to care for them. No one. And these widows are being neglected, right? They're being, they're being left out of the distribution of food. That is, that is a great evil that has come upon the church. That, that is uh, wickedness. I don't think it's purposeful wickedness. I don't think the Jews were like, oh, yeah, let's, uh, let's just leave all those ladies out. I just think that there were cultural things that were going on that prevented them from seeing the way that they should have seen and from knowing the way that they should have known. But, but it doesn't matter that that was the case. They were being left out. And the church saw that was not good, that it was wicked and that it was evil. And so the apostles step in and they appoint deacons to take care of the situation. And so remember that first section from the pure, uh, corruption from within, purity restored? So that's, that's also on our second page. You have corruption within, purity restored. So Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5 is equal to the issue of, with the Hellenist widows in Acts 6. One of the important deacons that was appointed in restoring that purity was this man named Stephen. Stephen is a man who's described very similar, similarly to the apostles. Stephen did great signs and wonders in uh, chapter 6, verse 8. That's how he was described. And that's just like the apostles doing many signs and wonders in, in Acts five twelve. Stephen also seems to find himself in conflict with the outside world. And he himself is dragged before the high priest where he confronts that man and that group of individuals with the message of the gospel. Now, granted, his message is like 
50 verses longer than Peter's, but the core of the message is the same. So it, Stephen is in 6, 9 through 753. It's a lot of verses. But um, Peter and the apostles are just Acts 5, 13 through 32. And so this is our mission engaged in persecution from without. It's the same in uh, Acts 5 as it is in this section about Stephen, the, the 6, 9 through 753. So the apostles are the same as Stephen in these two stories. And even the reaction from the outside world to the preaching of uh, Stephen is the same as the reaction to Peter's oration in Acts 5. Uh, 5.33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged. The uh, uh, NASB calls it cut to the quick. Enraged can be a word that we can often overlook as we're reading English because it's so common today. Uh, But cut to the quick is something that stands out to us. And if you look in Acts 7.54, you see basically the exact same wording. Um, now they, when they heard these things, they were enraged, or as the NASB says, cut to the quick. But the outcome of this rage, the outcome of this anger against God and his people is very different between Stephen and the apostles. Instead of being spared by the wise words of Gamaliel, Stephen is taken outside the city, much like his Lord and Savior, And there he is stoned to death. As he is being crushed by the stones, it is a disciple of Gamaliel, the one Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, the apostle, who stands in approval over the murder of Stephen. And if you're anything like me, you might find yourself asking, why didn't God save Stephen? God saved Peter and James and all those others. If he could do that then, then why didn't he do it for Stephen? Then you might, you might ask, did God love Stephen less? Now, if, if you ask that question, almost immediately you're probably like, no, 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 right? You see uh, Stephen gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, and he saw the glory of God. And you would be like, God loved Stephen. But are you so sure that it's still no when the question is about us? When the providence of God is hard, does our heart weep and ask, Lord, do you still love me? When all around us, seem to be getting promotions or jobs or bonuses, and we can't even get called back for a second interview. Do we still believe God loves us? When couple after couple announces a pregnancy or gives birth to a beautiful baby, and we can't even get pregnant, or when we do our joy is turned to uncontrollable sobs of grief when we lose our beautiful baby, do we still believe God loves us? When our relationships are crumbling because of the sin of another and all we see are healthy relationships in our neighborhood or at school or at work or in church, do we still believe God loves us? If God could give someone a job, why couldn't he give me a job? If God could give someone else a child, why can't he give me a child? If he could give someone else a healthy relationship, why can't he give me a healthy relationship 
And in the midst of our pain, we might be tempted to ask that question, does God still love me too? And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I know the reason that you are experiencing that pain or going through exactly what you are going through because I, I don't have that reason. I don't know. I don't know the secret counsels of God, nor do I have the mental capacity in my unglorified condition to trace the impact of every single event in human history and see where everything in the present has come from and what, will, and what it will produce in the future. I often can't even see the reason why things happen in my own life. Why the apostles now and not Stephen later? Tragedy and pain. Why this? Why that? I don't know. But church, I can answer the love question. I can speak to that right here and now because God's word speaks to that. And let me tell you what it says. I'm reading Romans 8, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or disease or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, think of Stephen here, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let me say it again. What happens under the providence of God never, ever, ever, ever is an indication of how much or how little God loves you. Instead of looking at our circumstances, we ought to look and lift up our eyes and think upon Jesus. Jesus is God's unceasing, unrelenting, uncompromising statement of love for you and to you. And Jesus' love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't you want to be close to this, Jesus? And that leads us to our second section here. Our second point, and that is of fellowship. Jesus is near. Who promises to wipe away every tear from our eye? Even the ones we shed under the hard providences of God. Jesus does in Revelation 21.4. Who offers prayers of intercession for us as we suffer through them? Jesus does. We read that in 
in Romans 8, and we, we read it again in Hebrews 7, 25. Who sympathizes with us, with us in our struggles as one who has endured the same sorts of temptations that we do? Jesus does. And he tells us that in Hebrews 4, 15. The apostles wanted to be close to Jesus. The apostles knew that closeness to Jesus was joy. That is why after receiving a beating at the hands of the Jews, they're able to leave the presence of their oppressors with shouts of joy. They're able to worship because they have experienced the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were like Paul, who put it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because it's of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, I'm, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There are two important ideas that Luke is using in this text to tell us of the beating and rejoicing of the apostles and to help us link them to Christ and to his uh, exalted position and to his suffering here on earth. The first phrase is that they beat them. We see that in verse 40. The only other time um, that uh, Luke uses this word, that they beat them, is when he is describing in Acts, or sorry, in Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Uh, the beating of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. The beating of the apostles this day in Acts echoes the blows struck on the body of Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus, our Christ, in his passion. Both Jesus and the apostles then share in this beating. The, the other phrase that's really important is this phrase that we find in verse 41. They were counted worthy. Again, the only other time Luke uses this phrase is in Luke 20, 35. Jesus is correcting the, the, the whack views of the um, Sadducees uh, concerning the resurrection. Jesus is rebuking them and says that the son of the sage marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equals to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So that age and the resurrection from the dead are, are kind of a big deal. They're really important. That age is the age of the Son of God, where his rule and reign will be complete and where his enemies will be completely obliterated and destroyed. It is the age when tears 
will ultimately be wiped away. And sin will be no more. And we will know Jesus completely. It is an age of delight and joy with no bounds. So in suffering with Jesus, or in, in the same manner of Jesus, the apostles were drawn up into the presence of God. They got to be in fellowship with Jesus and receive a foretaste of his final and blessed consummation of all things. So fellowship, Jesus is near. Goodness gracious, this keeps falling down on me, sorry. The third section here, and uh, this is the last one. Um, it kind of has a heading fountain, right? Fountain, Jesus is the Christ. So up to this point, we haven't talked much about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? What is his relationship to the world? The answer we find here is in verse 42. And this, this relationship to the world is something that the apostles saw clearly, that the early church saw, and, and it was something that they came back to over and over and over and over again. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the church's chief prophet and teacher. It means that Jesus is the one who makes known to us the path of life. It, it means that Jesus' statutes, his rules are beautiful, his laws are just, and his judgments are righteous altogether. The second thing that Jesus is the Christ means is that Jesus is the church's great high priest who has put away sin with the one sacrifice of his body on the cross. In Jesus, all sins are cleansed, all guilt removed, all judgment averted, all righteousness imputed, all holiness restored, all glorification ensured. His effectual prayers envelop us with his love and propel us forward to glory. And thirdly, Jesus is the Christ means that he is forever our king. He is a king who rules us through his holy and pure word. As king, he rises to our aid and breaks the teeth of the wicked in their mouth, which echoes, which is Psalm 3. He holds us in his hands and will let nothing snatch us from him. That's John 10, 28. The early church after the persecution, after the beatings, after the threats, after the charge to be silent about this name of Jesus, the early church keeps coming back over and over and over again to their fountain, to their source, to their joy, Jesus, and that Jesus is the Christ. The early church was thirsty, and Jesus is the fountain to which they drink. The early church is hungry, and Jesus is the bread which they eat. The early church is sick, and Jesus is the medicine for their souls. The early church is weak, but Jesus is strong. The early church is worried about life and about how they'll continue on. And Jesus is their prince of peace. 
The early church is weary with this world that we live in that is dark and full of pain. And the early church looks to Jesus as their alpha and their omega, their beginning and their end. You see, Jesus is the Christ, and the church can't stop teaching and preaching that. Let's pray. God, you are our king. We are so desperate for you. We are so needy before you. But we are so grateful that you are a very present help in time of trouble. We are so grateful that you are a rock of water that follows us in the wilderness. We are so grateful that you send manna from heaven to feed us. We are so grateful that in the wilderness you break the bread and the loaves and the fish and you feed multitudes. We are grateful that you turn deserts into into, uh, green pastures and bubbling brooks. We are grateful that you are with us in the midst of our pain and our sufferings. We are grateful that you are kind to us even when our circumstances burn. We are grateful that you are near even when you seem far off and hidden from us. Lord, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus. We are grateful for the way that he is compassionate to us and will not uh, put out our smoldering wicks or destroy our broken reeds. We are grateful how all we have to do is reach out and touch Jesus and we are healed. We are grateful that Jesus has shown us the pathway to life. And we are grateful that he has made it so easy. We are grateful that the work is done. The price is paid. And that you have counted those who believe in you worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead and to live in that age where we get to see and be with our Lord Jesus. So God, continue to captivate us with your love. Continue to propel us to obedience by the sheer gratitude that we have that we are yours and you are ours. That we can say that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You keep nothing from us. No blessing that we need on heaven or on earth is kept from us. And we don't always understand why you do the things that you do, Lord. But we believe that you love us. And we want our hearts to burn with love for you. Just like you made the hearts of those early disciples burn with love for you. You are a great God. And there is no one else. You are it. We love you, Lord. Amen.